Hey, Pitchfork Economics listeners, Uh, we've been doing this podcast for a while now, and it must be true that some of the stuff we've been talking about made no sense or that you had questions about. So we're doing an AMA episode uh, when we will take any question you have on economics. And what we want to do is rather than have you email them in, we want you to leave a voicemail in a special inbox because that'll make the episode so much more fun and interesting. So all you need to do is call 731-388-9334 and leave your questions. Super excited to hear what you're thinking, what your questions are, want to know what's landing and what makes no sense. So again, if you're interested, give us a call 731-388-9334. 9334. Thanks again for participating. We live in a country where the vast majority of young children have all available parents working. My husband and I, last year alone, paid more than $35,000 in childcare costs for our two kids. One third of unemployed women in the U.S left the workforce because of caregiving responsibilities. We're not where we should be because society has not made nearly the changes uh, that society needs to make. Virtually all of our peer nations handle this better than we do. If people are, particularly women, are, are stepping out of the workforce, that's money that's not being spent in local communities. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a conversation about how capitalism actually works. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. And I'm Jessen Farrell, senior vice president at Civic Ventures and mother of three kids. So today, we're going to talk about something that affects really every single person in this country, and that is that it's actually really, really hard to have a family in the United States, that our policy framework is super unfriendly to things like parental leave, childcare, flexible scheduling, and so on and so forth. In fact, of all the sort of developed nations, we probably have the worst set of policies um, that, that are available. And you know, which frames up the question for us, why does the U.S. hate families? Yeah, because it really seems like it does. When you think about how our policies impact families every single day, it is really hard on people, whether you are pregnant and needing to just get some time off to be able to go to, to your prenatal appointment or even needing to have a glass of water if you might be a you know pregnant checkout worker at a supermarket. Right. We don't do the prenatal piece well. And then that kind of follows all the way through early childhood care, up on through, you know, policies even like things ranging from land use. You might spend a lot of time commuting to your job. That's time away from your family. We do not infuse a family-friendly attitude into our policies at That's all right. in this country. And at the core of this problem has been this 40-year neoliberal obsession with uh, extracting as much of the rents in the economy available to big corporations and rich people. And as a consequence, we, we've done two things. We have um, you know, flatlined wages for workers, which has made costs essentially on a relative basis go up. It's just harder to afford things. Uh, But one of the other really insidious things that that process has done is it has forced 
uh, all families essentially to be two earner families rather than one earner families. And of course, if both people are working, you're just going to need more childcare. And so it's been this really terrible double whammy for families who earn less on a relative basis and work more. Yeah, that's right. And it plays out across the workforce. Uh, When I had my second child, I worked at a transit agency. So you had a workforce that had bus drivers, you had more traditional, you know, white collar workers. There was a whole range of job functions at that agency. And the challenges for people with children were really tough. What if you were a breastfeeding mother and having to drive a bus? The agency did not have a way of managing that. But even if you were a breastfeeding mother at a desk job, there was no facility to pump. Um, and then, you know, you get into the childcare costs and the dearth of childcare, and it just becomes really hard. Yeah. So, Jessen, uh, I'm a little out of date. My kids are older now. Tell me a little bit about how much you and, you know, folks around uh, town are paying for childcare. So, it's insanely in- expensive. If you have your infant in a full time childcare center, that's about $18,000 a year. Wow. If you're a family of four in Seattle and you have two young kids and you're earning $80,000 a year, your child care costs border on 50% of your income. Yeah. Uh, and, and the costs, as I understand it, are after tax. Right. <laughs> and your income is pre-tax. But that's right. right. So exactly. It's, every bit, it's probably every bit 50% of your income. That's just the price to go to work. Exactly. <laughs> so the price to shocking. go to work is really high. Yeah. That doesn't even get into the costs associated with the time. You may not have childcare anywhere near where you live yeah. because there's such a childcare capacity crisis yep. in urban areas, but also in rural areas. And, you know, that doesn't even figure into all of the other high costs associated with living in a city like Seattle related to housing and other things. So the burdens on families are intense and it forces some families where there's a choice to have to decide maybe one parent isn't even going to participate in the workforce. And then that gets at the longer term economic stability of the family, the ability of women to earn on par with their male counterparts because maybe they're taking that time out because it just doesn't pencil out in the near term. So this is something that we really have to figure out because people are really having to make tough and almost impossible economic choices just to show up at work every day. Yeah, and there's this amazing statistic, which is that one third of unemployed women in the U.S., left the workforce because of caregiving responsibilities. And as was discussed in our recent pay equity episode, having kids is one of the reasons women don't earn as much as men and aren't in those high paying and executive level positions in our society and economy. Uh, Because let's face it, the responsibilities and burdens of motherhood are huge. Just it has an enormous effect on the broader economy, not to mention the families. Their themselves. own earning. Yeah. I mean, you <laughs> exactly. know, and what that yeah. really means then yeah. is that when you're stepping out of the workforce, you are losing out on actual wages and benefits over the course of your lifetime. Right. And, you know, that's also saying that that our economy and businesses are also losing out right. on um the productivity of employees on you know issues related to absenteeism. Um, in fact, U.S. businesses lose approximately four point four billion dollars annually because of childcare issues right. and not being able to find adequate childcare. Yeah, and you know one of the things that people often push back on is that this is too expensive or it's impossible or whatever it is. But just to be clear, virtually all of our peer nations handle this better than we do. 
and none of them have turned into poverty-stricken hellholes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like all of Western Europe, the Scandinavian countries, Canada, New Zealand, like all of these countries have much better policies, much more generous policies than we have. And as far as I can tell, the only difference is that people are just generally happier. It's yeah. just a better system. And of course, as we know, that when you have money in your pocket, when families have more income, they spend it right. in their mm-hmm. local exactly in their local communities. So Jessen, today we're going to talk about childcare and we have a fun guest. Yeah, this is really exciting. We have Katie Ham, who is the Vice President of Early Childhood Policy at the Center for American Progress, where she leads CAP's work on policies impacting young children from birth to five. Hey. Hi. <laughs> uh, it's Nick Hanauer here. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for someone who's maybe never given a lot of thought to this issue, tell us why early learning and child care matter. Give us the sure. give us the elevator speech. Sure. So we live in a country where the vast majority of young children have all available parents working, which means that they're going to be spending a significant amount of time in the care of somebody other than their parent. And the child care that we have to support families in this country is really lacking. We have kind of this arbitrary idea that education starts when children are five or six, and it's just not true. We now have decades of brain development science that shows that those early years are actually when um, children's brains are developing and and forming the foundation that's going to set them up for success in life or not. Um, So we really need to be looking much earlier, and we need to be looking at the quality of those experiences that children have, especially when they're in the care of somebody other than their parent. It strikes me, Katie, that one of the things that makes this issue so much more pressing than it was, say, 40 years ago at the dawn of the neoliberal era is that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, one person in a family could have a job and the salary that they brought home would sustain the family. And Mm -hmm. so that usually meant uh, that the mother uh, would be able to stay home and take care of the kids and, and take up a lot of that, that work. And that now you really can't afford to do that, that now uh, we have an economy where in order to sustain a middle-class life in general, both people have to work. And uh, obviously that's, you know, left little kids at home alone. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the economic conditions that families are facing have shifted for sure. Um, I think it's important in this conversation, too, that we think about women of color who've been in the workforce for a long time. Um, And it's interesting that you bring up the 1970s because the U.S. actually got really, really close to universal child care in the 1970s. There was a universal child care bill that passed Congress that um, President Nixon was expected to sign. And Pat Buchanan, who was an advisor at the time, convinced him that this was a communist plan and that he should veto it. In the end, he vetoed it. He linked child care to communism. And we're just kind of now able to have another big conversation about what should we do to solve the child care crisis. If you could change things in the system right now, what would you do? I mean, I know that from 
uh, you know, having kids myself, the issue of childcare deserts, it's really often um, workers aren't compensated at the right level, living wage, there's the mm-hmm. issues of quality. You know, what would you change? Where would you start? So I think I'd start by rethinking about how we invest in young children and not making that really false distinction between K-12 education and early childhood education. So I would think about investing the same amount of money for young children. And so having you know, a mechanism in place that allows a public investment in kids' birth to five that funds a lot of different options for parents. Some parents want a home-based uh, childcare program. Some parents want a center-based program. Um, and I think when you do that and you invest in quality standards in place and you improve the wages of the workers, who, as you noted, the average wage for a child care educator in this country is $10 an hour. Um, if you do those things, if you have the financing in place, if you address the quality, if you address the wages, um, then you can build supply um, and you can um, get to a place where, you know, it's not unaffordable. It's considered a public good like other services that are available to families like K-12 education. So that's where I would start. Katie, do you have a sense for how much, have you guys done an analysis of how much it would cost to enact a robust federal child care program? So I haven't done that research, but the National Academy of Sciences has. Um, and their estimate is that to have a high quality child care program in this country for kids birth to five, we would need $140 billion per year. That's not necessarily all public funding. You would have potentially parents paying a copayment. You would have state and local resources going to it. But that's that's the price tag. It's not cheap. Well, it is cheap compared to what we spend annually on stock buybacks. Absolutely. <laughs> right. right. The prison industrial yeah. complex. And, and right. this stuff pays for itself, right? Right. So maybe Absolutely. we don't need to obsess about how much it costs because yeah. we know, right, you mentioned this, that investments early on are the ones that pay off the most as kids get older. So, um, so I think you make really a great point around how we start to think of this as just part of our education system. What's controversial about that? That yeah. seems to me to be so pragmatic. What are some of the obstacles? You know, I think when we when we talk to policymakers about this issue, first of all, I would say that there is growing support and growing recognition across political parties that this is an issue. This is something that families can't just be expected to handle on their own, that it's generating inequality before kids even start kindergarten. Um, the things that we hear about the most are, are generally around cost. I think that that argument from the 1970s that this is um, an affront to the family, There's that's still alive today. There is still an undercurrent sometimes of, well, mom should be home or, you know, this isn't the role of government. But I, I do think that's changing. I think even compared to 10 years ago, we're hearing it less and less. And what do you think is the narrative replacement? If we all agree that those two stories are old and should be discarded, what what do you think is the narrative replacement? How should we be talking about this? I think it's about economic policy. If we all want to 
have an economy that's strong and thriving and we want parents and families to be economically secure and we want people to be able to have children and raise them to be successful citizens, that means we have to start investing in children from their earliest days and years. Um, you know, we have just a mountain of evidence that when you invest in early childhood programs, more parents are able to work and children enter school ready to learn. And so it's a kind of, it's a twofer. You can both grow the economy today and you can set your community, your state, your country up for economic success in the future and having a really robust workforce in the future. Interesting. So Tell us a little bit about what's happening in our peer countries. You know, there, there are countries that have these systems in place to a greater or lesser degree that ideally we could learn from. Who do you look to or what do you look to as examples of stuff that's working? Yeah, so, you know, Scandinavian countries in Western Europe, which it, not surprisingly, um, made some of these investments long ago and don't differentiate between elementary school and early childhood. They have robust family leave plans um, that allow parents to stay home when the children are young. Um, and then they have um, early education starting, you know, two, three, um, sometimes younger. And, you know, even countries that have smaller economies, um, you know, like in uh, South America or in some Asian countries, they are starting to invest in early childhood in a really robust way. You know, Quebec has a universal child care program that provides a subsidy to families to help them afford child care that they've had for decades. So um, there's no shortage of models out there um, when it comes to kind of developing a robust early childhood program. And, you know, we have some states that have led the way on pre-K. So you have states like Georgia and Oklahoma that serve most of their four-year-olds in a public pre-K program. Um, and then you have cities like D.C. and New York also have robust preschool programs. So we're getting there on early education. I don't think we have a state yet that kind of has the full birth to five piece. And it's parents with infants and toddlers that often struggle the most both to find child care and to pay for it. So we, we still have a ways to go. You know, one of the things I thought you might talk about is the U.S. military system and the child care that is that that we do. So in some ways, we have a great model in the US. Can you talk a little bit about what happens with the military and how childcare is provided? Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. So the US military has a childcare program. Um, it is it, in the 1990s, um, basically, the lack of childcare support in the military was considered a national security threat. And so they built a program that would support families and allow parents to work. All parents pay on a sliding scale. They have quality standards that everybody has to meet. They have credentials that early educators attain so that they learn um, the skills that it takes to work with young children. Parents can select home-based program centers. They have resources and lending libraries that providers can use. And I, you know, I think people are pretty happy with it. I think the parents are happy. I think the, the educators are generally pretty happy um, in that system. So, you know, it exists across the country on military bases, and it's it's just something that, that can be done. Would it be plausible to just take the military system and extend it to the rest of the country? 
You know, I think that that model and kind of the principles that guide it are definitely scalable. Um, you know, I think when it comes to oversight and, and some of the infrastructure that you need to get there, we have some work to do on that. But I think the principle of limiting what families pay, putting quality standards in place, um, and increasing wages and putting everybody kind of on a wage scale is certainly doable. Yeah, it sure seems like it. We do it. It's just a matter of, of obviously figuring out how to make it work across the country. One of the things that I think is really interesting is how we, there are some really great things that work in the United States, particularly I think the flexibility that there are lots of different kinds of childcare options. There's the issue of culturally appropriate childcare that's provided, um, you know, particularly in immigrant communities. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that and what might happen to those kinds of programs if we were to implement universal public childcare. Yeah. So, you know, we, you're right. We do have a lot of different programs in this country and, and parents kind of, um, you know, they have options and they don't. Um, so, you know, I think like a robust childcare system doesn't leave people behind who are currently providing childcare. And I think that's why it's really important when you lay out a vision for childcare, if you're asking for higher quality standards, for more credentials, that there are resources and supports to help people get there. Um, a lot of childcare providers right now are doing the best they can with very few resources. So it's really important. We have a really diverse um, early childhood workforce that reflects the diversity of young children in this country who are um, not majority white. Um, and so that's a real strength of the early childhood system, the diversity, the languages, um, racial diversity that we have in the early childhood system. And so we want to think about how do we move everyone forward towards more quality, towards more options and sustainability without losing um, the great diversity that they bring to the table. And I think that comes through being really intentional about before you ask people to meet standards or before you ask them to get that degree or credential, you need to provide scholarships, tuition assistance, paid release time, resources to help them go through different processes that can build quality in their programs. So if you could if you could wave a wand and make one big change first, what would you do? I would significantly increase the wages so that we can retain a very highly qualified and stable early childhood workforce. The the biggest predictor of quality in a childcare setting is that interaction between a child and an adult. And when we pay people sub-poverty wages, it's just all that more challenging to get to high quality. So that's what I do. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a good first step. Yeah, cool. Cool. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us, Katie. Okay, thank you. Okay, Bye. take care. It's one thing to talk about what you can do in the face of something as large as how the American economy hates families. But it's another thing to actually work on fixing that. Hi, my name is Sarah Lebovitz, and I'm a producer here on Pitchfork Economics. And I got the chance to sit down and talk to Washington State Representative Christine Reeves, who is actively working on legislation that could really have a positive impact on the kind of issues that we talk about when we talk about how America hates families. 
Christine Reeves, nice, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Come on in, have a seat. We know that most of the remaining gender pay gap is created when women have children and leave the workforce either temporarily or permanently. How can state or federal policies help to make the labor force more fair for working moms and for parents in general? Well, that's a loaded question, uh, but I think there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. I'm a working mom myself. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and like a lot of working families, my husband and I are very fortunate that we have a dual income, but we had to have that conversation when our kids came, and surprisingly, I'm actually the primary income earner in my family, and so the conversation wasn't about whether or not I would leave the workforce. It was about whether or not my husband would leave the workforce, because essentially his salary was the full cost of our childcare bill, um, and I think a lot of folks are having those conversations. Unfortunately, disproportionately, that conversation usually impacts moms over dads. And so that means that we're losing more women in the workforce who choose to stay home uh, with their kids because the balancing of the budget just doesn't work out. There's a lot of ways that we can be helpful. So we know right now that childcare costs actually exceed uh, the cost of sending your kids to college uh, in a lot of places. And so we've got to figure out how to kind of wrap all of these things together in a way that makes sure that women aren't being disproportionately impacted when we're asking folks to um, think about their future and how we invest in our kids. So obviously, I think a lot of people assume that because I'm a working mom uh, and have kids of my own, that this really came up because my husband and I last year alone paid more than $35,000 in childcare costs for our two kids, which is crazy when you think about it, right? That's more than a third of my income going to that one thing. And when you have a mortgage payment and a car payment, and like a lot of families, I have $180,000 in student loan debt that I'm also trying to pay off. Um, it gets it gets challenging to really make ends meet. It does lead to like an interesting dichotomy of, you know, childcare is so expensive, and yet childcare providers, the majority of whom are women, are so poorly paid. Right. How do you find that balance of creating childcare that is affordable, but still respecting and creating a good space for the people who provide that childcare? No, I think that's an excellent question. And come to find out that um, early childhood educators, childcare providers are um, actually representative of the communities in which they work. So it's not just women, but it's women of color. It's new Americans of different backgrounds with multiple language sets. And we know that 90% of uh, kids' brain development happens in the ages of zero to five. And so so when we think about how we've just made historic investments in our K through 12 system, $7.5 billion last year, but we know that 47% of our kids aren't coming to school kindergarten ready and that our kindergarten classrooms don't necessarily always reflect the communities in which folks are living, we know that we've got to figure out how to replicate the model in early learning and spread that across the entire education system. But to your point, the challenge is how do you get high quality early childhood educators when some of them are being paid less than dog groomers in our state. So for me, it's about how do we make sure that we're actually compensating teachers to the standards that we're asking them to have. And we've got a lot of standards in Washington around early childhood education. So it's how are we making sure that those wages actually demonstrate the value that we've asked um, these early childhood educators to have. But also, again, at the end of the day, it's how do we make sure that they can feed their families too, that they can put a roof over their head, especially when we're asking them to take care of our kids. We want them to also be able to take care of their kids. And so part of this um, cost model conversation has to be about how we make sure we're finding balance in that in that budget question, I guess. So let's go into a little bit of the specifics of what you've been working on. Uh, what is the mom agenda? 
Yeah, so um, the Working Moms Agenda actually has a couple different pieces of legislation attached to it. So some of the bigger items on the agenda um, focus on sales tax exemptions. So one sales tax exemption for diapers. Um, so as you, if you know, as you know, if you've had kids, diapers are fairly expensive. Um, as it is, it's not something that it's not a luxury. I can't just let my kid walk around without a diaper on, right? Um, if your kid is in childcare, you don't have an option to send them to school with cloth diapers. You have to use disposable diapers. And uh, this was just one way, as you're thinking about how you balance your family's budget, that we thought we might be able to shave off some cost savings for, for working families. The second item on the agenda is what we call the tampon tax. Um, it's really around uh, taking the sales tax off feminine hygiene or menstrual products um, and making sure that those are a little bit more affordable. Again, similar concept around diapers. These are not luxury items. These aren't things that I can go through my family budget and say, I'm just going to live without that for a month. So, um, you know, looking at ways that, again, we could kind of try to find a little bit of cost savings in a family's budget. We also have a, a big bill that's actually uh, on the House floor calendar around diaper changing stations. My husband actually brought this issue up and talked to a lot of working dads that when you go out to spend time with your family in public places, in restaurants in particular, women's restrooms might have diaper changing stations, uh, and but you always find that the guys' rooms don't. And so my husband was super frustrated that he couldn't you know, contribute to to the family conversation. And then I ended up doing kind of the burden of diaper changing. And so introduced a bill to make sure that restaurants who are serving children's menus are complying and making sure that they're including diaper changing stations in all of their restrooms. And then the biggest one, and this is my favorite one to talk about, is how we make childcare more accessible and affordable for working families. And so we've actually introduced a series of bills, but the bill that just passed House Bill 1344, it's known as the Washington Child Care Access Now Act, um, sets a very bold vision for the state of Washington to look at how we would cap childcare expenses at 7% of a family's income. It looks at how we would make sure that we're compensating that early education workforce at the rate that they actually deserve commensurate with their education. Um, and then looks at making sure that we're expanding facility uh, access while ensuring quality of care. So it's a bold vision for the state of Washington. It's something that I'm really proud of the work that our business partners and our business community have come to the table over the last year around the Child Care Collaborative Task Force. It's a bill that we passed last year to bring the business community to the table to say, hey, guys, you've been missing from this conversation under no fault of their own. Um, but we wanted to make sure that they got an invite. And we started thinking strategically about how businesses can also help us solve this problem. Because this is no longer just a mom issue. This is an economy issue. This is a working families issue. Um, and this is an employer issue. And so I'm really excited. That it's, it's a pretty big, bold uh, agenda. But I think um, it's time for us to have a conversation around how working moms deserve a little bit of attention on some of the policies that we do down here. Have you gotten any push? back on those bills? Like, I feel like all of those should be things <laughs> that everyone supports. I wouldn't say pushback is the right word, but I think there's, you know, rightly so, questions and comments. It seems, you know, rather obvious to those of us who have kids in childcare and those of us who um, are raising families that these seem like good common sense bills. But what I would tell you is there's definitely a conversation about, you know, is this government overreach? Is this taking away folks' personal accountability and responsibility for their own budgets? In the childcare conversation, there's definitely questions about whether or not the state has overregulated the market and if that's part of the reason that we're challenged with the supply and demand issue. And it's a different conversation than we've had in Olympia. Um, since getting here, we've really changed the conversation from how we're focusing on just the early learning curriculum and the things we're teaching our kids and to more of a comprehensive systems approach around the fact that childcare really is early learning. And if the childcare system isn't working, then early learning, we're not getting anybody the early learning that they need. And again, it goes back to that. Then we're missing 47% of our, our youngest learners aren't coming to school kindergarten ready. 
I mean, I don't know if you know this, but our state uh, budget, about 53% of our state's budget goes to K-12 through education. About 15% of it goes to higher education opportunities. Only 1.8% of our state budget goes to early childhood education. And yet we know that 90% of a kid's brain development happens in zero to five. So we want to talk about things like closing the opportunity gap and making sure that the children farthest from opportunity get best starts. This is one of the ways that we're going to know that we've hit it, if you will, um, when those kids are actually showing up to school ready to learn. For sure, we have a lot to do, but folks like Representative Reeves are, in, at least in Washington State, are clearly making these issues a priority, and we have to support her here and the legislation she's working on at the state level. And folks should support in, in states across the country uh, similar legislation to hopefully make some of this uh, happen around the country. We talked to Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is the president and CEO of New America. She was formerly the first female director of policy planning at the State Department under Secretary Clinton. And after her 2012 article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, became the most read article in the history of the Atlantic, she's emerged as an advocate for family-friendly policies. You had the either, I don't know if it was good fortune or bad fortune to write uh, the most read article in the Atlantic's history, wasn't it? Uh, why women still can't have it all. She kicked up quite a thing at the time. I remember reading it. Um, so let's start by asking the question, can women have it all now? <laughs> Yet? <laughs> No, but I would say nobody can have it all. Uh, you know, it's funny. I That article was entitled uh, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, and it was actually intended to, to say we're not where we should be because society has not made nearly the changes uh, that society needs to make. And, of course, that nuance was lost on most of the audience, and so I now get introduced as the woman who thinks women can't have it all. But I think... <laughs> Yeah. You know, we need massive social change so that all of us, men and women, yes. can have the joys of our families, whether constructed or biological or our communities and fulfilling work. And that's really what what it means. But we're a long way from that for yeah. both sexes. You know, in the first place, I think we are still making economic policy as if we were in the 1950s. We are still assuming that there is a person, a woman, at home to do all the hard work of making a home, caring for children, caring for elders, uh, doing the domestic side of what every person in the workforce needs. And that was never true for working class women, women of color, but it was true for middle class and upper middle class uh, white women. And in the 1950s, we are now almost at 2020. Uh, the only way that middle class families have stayed afloat has been to send women into the workforce, which has been good for lots of women, but it has made uh, family finances even more precarious because there isn't a safety net now if something happens to either parent. And we don't have child care. We don't have family leave. We don't have elder care, family accounts, any of the things that clearly a society that thought, well, everybody in the society is producing income, working for income some part of the time, 
clearly they also we have to have a system uh, of care, the kind of work that generally doesn't get paid. You know, I read your article in 2012. I was running for office the very first time. I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And as we were doorbelling my neighborhood, <laughs> I would often get the question, well, who's going to take care of your kids when you're yes. down in Olympia in the legislature? Recognizing, of course, that my male colleagues were probably not getting that question. And so awesome. you make this great point around caregiving and how that has to become something that is valued both for men and women, right? I think that's right. part of the key here. We named this episode, Why Does the USA Hate Families? But at the same time, so much of this still is about women. Do you think that anything has changed in the last six years? Or is it, uh, it are the circumstances that gave rise to your article in 2012 still the same? I should say seven years as they are in 2019. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I think it is getting better as millennial men move into their parenting years, they are much more engaged. The women they're marrying are much savvier about what can happen if you don't set patterns of equality very, very early. I always use the example of it's like doing the taxes, whichever a member of a couple does the taxes the first time, he or she will do them forevermore. So and child care is, is similar patterns. You have to you have to get into those uh, rhythms early. And also, you know, 40% of women are the primary breadwinner in their households. Now, a lot of those are single mothers, but a lot are not. So that's changing too. But we still don't have either the infrastructure of care that we need, nor do we have the social attitudes that recognize that investing in the next generation is just as important uh, as investing money for pay. Right. So one of the questions I have, and, and to be clear, let me, let me just say, I think it's worth underscoring that we idealize the 1950s Yes. Right. Uh, but, yes, it, but, we do. But just for purposes of discussion, let's accept that stylized, idealized idea in our heads, right? That, you know, you had an economy which permitted one person to go to work and earn a living and another person, whether it was a man or a woman, frankly, stay home and do the care work. And we had that for a period of time when we set up a bunch of norms of behavior and policies to support that construct. You know, a question in my head is, would you want to go back to an economy that could, where, where a family could support itself with one earner and uh, one person could stay home and do all the care work? Or it, it, would that be a good thing? I mean, I mean, you, you, there are a couple of levers here to pull, right? One is to try to return to an economic construct that permits that arrangement. Another is to accommodate the existing economic construct, which does not permit that for most people, where, where in, for most families, both people have to work. And then you account for care in a different way. So if Anne-Marie was in charge of everything, what would you do? So I would create an economy where 50 hours of work a week would support a family. Mm -hmm. And then I would 
create the social norms that said how you divide those 50 hours between two people is entirely up to them and is dependent on their personalities and their desires rather than their genders. It would be better if we had jobs that were sufficient to make more room for care. And so, you know, 40 hours, 50 hours, but that you then could divide them uh, so that men and women, Mm -hmm. say between whenever it's 25 to 55, our childbearing, childrearing years, that everyone would say during that period, or indeed when you're caring for your own parents or other relatives, I can continue working and growing, although perhaps not as steep a slope uh, as without children, and I also have time to invest in my children, which of course is investing in ourselves as well. It's some of the most rewarding things I've done in my life are investing in my children, parenting, seeing myself reflected in their eyes, but also the enormous pleasure of watching them grow. And it's not just my my kids, it's, it's also students. So I would want a world in which, as I said, two people who worked somewhere between 40 and 60 hours a week were able to do that to support themselves and have time for care. I really like that. You identify so clearly the nexus between time and the ability to care for your family. And that's something that we don't elevate in the conversation around work enough. We talk about compensation. We talk about providing childcare benefits. And we talk about, to some lesser extent, the limitations on an individual's work, but a family, a couple, an economic unit's limitations on time are really not something that are part of our cultural dialogue. And I wonder how you interrupt our cultural obsession with wedding ourselves to work and this place that we need to get to, which is that we actually have time allocated amongst two people uh, to be able to care for our families. This, I mean, this is really a tough one. And I, I tell people that in the time since I wrote my article in 2012 to publishing a book called Unfinished Business in 2015, I had to deprogram myself as a workaholic uh, and as somebody who absolutely had been conditioned to believe that work for pay was valuable and care work was not, to somebody who now really believes that from the point of view of our national security, our economy, and frankly, morality in the sense of of being able to close uh, inequality gaps, that that care work is every bit as important as the other work uh, that we do. But we are a nation who absolutely pride ourselves on being able to say we work as close to 24 hours a day as, as is humanly possible. And yet that is sharply at variance with the family values that we also uh, say that we uphold. So the way I think about it when I talk to audiences or try to convince people is to get them to understand that care work is investing in others just as career work is investing in yourself and that a good life involves a balance between the two for you as much as for the people you're caring for. And I think people don't think of it that way. And they they think care work is only physical, bathing and dressing and feeding. 
A, that's that's only a, a relatively small part, and B, even that kind of physical work is the platform on which you teach your children uh, or you engage people, you, you actually have that fabric of human interaction, which is deeply satisfying to both parties. I mean, not every minute of every day, I'm, I'm realistic, but it is ultimately at the end of our lives that human connection that we forge is as important to us as our bank accounts. Absolutely. You know, in rereading your article, it reminded me of the extraordinary amount of effort that my wife and I had to apply, as apparently you did, to getting our son to do and turn in his homework. (laughs) 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 And Oh, yes. And one of the really profound sort of lessons that I've taken away from raising children is, you know, if it was as hard as it was for my family, where, by the way, my wife did not work, and where all the resources in the world were at our disposal, it was that hard for us to get our son to do his homework and turn it in. You know, like I just, you know, the, the, the challenges for a family with less resources and less flexibility than us, it's just, it's just insane, right? And we just have to find a way to confront that reality and those difficulties. I do find myself retreating sometimes with respect to issues like this to ideas like, should we pay people for care work? Would it, be helpful to give giant tax exemptions, for for instance, to people who choose to stay home and care for their children. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, this is this is tricky, and again, <laughs> we shouldn't be making. We should not assume that policy changes will do all the work for us. Yes, indeed, as we were just saying, you got asked. Who's going to stay with your children when you're going down to Olympia? (laughs) Men didn't get asked that. We have a lot of work to do around cultural expectations as to who uh, is going to do care work or those kinds of tax exemptions will, in fact, drive women out of the workforce uh, and into the home. And unless we do this equally, we're going to be going backwards. But there's also the point of not commoditizing everything, right? To think of care as a commodity like yeah. any other. So you, you know, pay for your groceries and you pay for care. No, care is the heart of human connection. I think care jobs should be far better paid. And I think people who are caring for others should be part of social security. I think they sh- their work should be seen and valued. But I don't think it only has to be valued in money. And I'd much rather have a world in which people looked at someone who did only worked and said, what a narrow, sad human being. What a person who's missing out on some of the best life has to offer. That would be a better change uh, than suddenly saying, well, you know, care work is work and we're just going to pay for it no matter who does it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about as I'm listening to you speak about this is that it's not just that we need this cultural interruption of that situation, but also that the way we apply it from a policy standpoint by sector really matters. What does the ability to have more time for your family in the construction sector look like versus in a state legislature versus in academia? And so how do you balance the I think the need for nuance by sector with this more broad universal value of 
elevating care as an important thing. Yeah, it's, uh, I, th- I think you're right to point out that, that different sectors uh, do need to be treated differently. I mean, I was an academic for 20 years, and that's kind of the perfect, uh, flexible arrangement that is also high prestige and high paid where, you know, you have to show up for to teach classes and you have to show up for certain meetings. But other than that, you are you are paid for what you produce uh, in terms of, of being a good scholar, doing your research, teaching good classes, but on your own time. But that would not work in construction, right? You can't just say, okay, the roofer is going to come in, uh, you know, whenever she wants to, and the plumber's going to come in whenever he wants to. You won't get a house. Uh, so I think in some ways uh, we, we need to say that good work, right? Let's think about good work for everyone in our society. Good work is work that allows you uh, to grow in your work and to maximize your productivity and your personal uh, development, but also to have other parts of a life. And again, not everybody's going to have kids, although everybody has parents, but other people are going to want to invest in their communities and invest in others in different ways. But then different sectors will have to be able to adjust uh, as they need to. And we may need to do things uh, like have a family care account where this is something I Jin Poo and the, the National Coalition for Domestic Workers and the organization Caring Across Generations have suggested that the equivalent of Social Security in this century should be a care account where the government puts in some money and you put in some money where you have the ability to take time out as you need it. Some of that will be emergency, but some of that will, will simply be, you know, being able to go be home at three o'clock when your kids come home from school and then go back online uh, later when you need to. Again, that doesn't work for building a house, but there's a lot that it that it can work for. And that's definitely one element, the ability to take the time. But as you're talking about a roofer or even a state legislator or anyone else, any female, you would want to make sure that that roofer is able to pump, you know, should she yes. have a baby, you know. So there are all of these really specific nuances that go into creating a society that actually allows for work and the economic self-determination that comes from being able to have a job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So this was a fantastic chat. Um, Thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy day to chat with us about these issues. They're super important. It's so great uh, to get to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Emery. It's really a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Those are great discussions on how tough it is for families to have economic security in the United States relating to child care, paid family leave. There's just a bunch of stuff that we are not doing right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And it really does sort of come down to who, who do we collectively want to be able to participate in the economy and at what cost? Because even when people sort of have, the, have permission to participate in the economy, if the trade-offs make no sense, then they rightly won't. And I, I just don't I just don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. And there's this really interesting intersection between cost and time that yeah. both interviews alluded to. You know, Anne-Marie Slaughter talked about what would it look like if we had families work just 50 hours a week between 
two parents, right? So that they could really be able to care for their family. And if we paid them enough so that it would work that way. Yeah. And then of course we had Katie Ham talking about just how expensive childcare is and how hard it is to find childcare. And so there's this intersection between the time and cost burden that we're placing on families that just makes it really tough. And then the other thing that I, I thought was really interesting about Katie's interview was this idea that there's this arbitrary distinction between education starting at five as just, you know, yeah. this age, you know, that it clearly in another era when we were inventing public education, that was a, a cutoff that seemed to make sense. But yeah. we no longer live in an agrarian society, right. um, you know, that's based on the agricultural cycles. And so we need to really update our notion of when education starts based on science. And we know that that starts as soon as infants are born. That's right. And in an economy that makes it unambiguously difficult for single earner families to survive, where we have suppressed wages in a way that make it necessary for both parents, given that there are two parents, right. uh, need to be in the workforce in order to lead stable, secure, dignified lives. We have to come up with a way uh, to support families who have children. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. You can't <laughs> you can't want an economy where everybody has to work all the time and not support childcare in some way, shape or form. Right. And and even to take that a little wider lens, I mean, I think our contention is that you can have a ha you know, a great thriving economy and have families that are able to do what they need to do Absolutely. to support each other. And in fact, the two are in a feedback loop with one another. Exactly. The stronger the families are, the stronger the economy will be. And again, Justin, let's not forget that it's not just about childcare, it's also about scheduling practices. It's about an overtime threshold that either gets you home after eight hours of work or pays you a lot for the sacrifices you're making uh, to be there for more than eight hours. Certainly helps you pay for the childcare necessary to stay, stay overtime. It's about paid family leave. It's about all the other things that go into having a stable and secure family life while participating in the workforce. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, this is really about the workplace needing to adapt to the 21st century. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal explains what centrism actually is. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening.